They come with a great view and sometimes with dramatic stories of sea rescues they've witnessed. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll go lighthouse hopping around the world. They're always in these amazing locations, right? I mean, the, the very definition of a lighthouse is that it's on the sort of edge of civilization. Are you charmed by the idea of visiting manor houses and estates in the English countryside? In just a bit, we'll hear what it's like to work for a British nobleman at his estate in scenic Gloucestershire. Just occasionally you get that little indication that they are just slightly different to the rest of us. And it could be him dropping out a story that he's been to a party at Windsor Castle. Or visit the Celtic-speaking people in nearby Wales, and they might let you in on a secret, how they feel about their longtime rivals in England. There's always a little bit of envy, you know. We're very well-balanced people in Wales. We have a chip on both shoulders. Let's get away together for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The soil's too rocky to farm, and its industrial heyday is becoming a distant memory. Coming up in just a bit, our favorite guide from Carnarvon tells us how the people of Wales cling to an identity that sets them apart from the rest of Britain. We'll also get a peek inside the slightly faded splendor of a rambling English estate with a guide who shows visitors around Stanway House in the summer. If you're lucky, the colorful Lord of the Manor will be on hand to explain some of his family's historical curiosities. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with a look at the noble watchtowers of the world's coastlines. Lighthouses changed the fortunes of nations, helping determine which ones would dominate in the 19th century. And it's all because a French physicist knew enough about the properties of light to vastly improve the signals produced by their beacons. Today, lighthouses can be a destination all their own, complete with a great view and maybe a beautiful lens designed by Augustine Fresnel on display. Teresa Levitt tells us about the birth of the modern lighthouse in her book, A Short Bright Flash. She teaches history at Old Miss and joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Teresa, welcome. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. For me, lighthouses really have a mystique, and I think for a lot of travelers, you know, we, we, we see these lighthouses, and, and what is it about lighthouses that has that special attraction, and, and why are you so interested in lighthouses? <laughs> well, I think half of the question is that they're always in these amazing locations, right? I mean, the, the very definition of a lighthouse is that it's on the sort of edge of civilization. You have to travel to get to them, and then when you're there, that's about as far as you can go. I just love that because I, I really like land's end. There's so many ends of the road, you know, and then yes. when you get to the final the end of the road, there's still a lighthouse out there on some <laughs> desolate rock. And that's the last thing you see. And you can also imagine for someone traveling over the ocean that that's the first thing they see. And so it's also sort of the indication of the beginning of civilization for them. Before we get into specifics on lighthouses and the technology behind them, give us a little primer. Where were the earliest lighthouses? And they must be very expensive to build. What's the practical use of them? Well, it's interesting because I think the, the word lighthouse can mean a lot of different things. People have this idea that lighthouses are you know, this very ancient form of technology. And, uh, and this isn't necessarily wrong. You know, in the sort of seven wonders of the ancient world, everyone knows about the lighthouse of Alexandria. But actually, a second one of those wonders was also a lighthouse. The Colossus of Rhodes, people now think, was, was holding up a light. So on the one hand, they go back very far. But really these sort of ancient technologies were in many ways different from what we think of a lighthouse now. Um, they started out really to mark the entrances of harbors. So as ships would be coming in, usually there would be sort of a, a day beacon, uh, some sort of marker to show that this was the entrance. And then often they put 
spires on top of these to help make them more visible. And this is really essentially what a lighthouse was for So that's interesting because when you think of Alexandria and you think of Rhodes, those are the two most famous ancient lighthouses that I know about. And both of them didn't warn mariners about a reef or a rock. They just marked great harbors. Right. So there would be something that, uh, you know, sort of sailors would be sort of wanting to approach them. Uh, That was the whole point. And you can see in this sense, it's fine if the light is fairly dim. That is, I mean, obviously you want the light to be as bright as possible, but in this sense, a dim light is still better than having no light at all. Oh, it'd be like a light marking the limits of your driveway so people can get in at night without running over your garden. Yes. And these really weren't anything fancy. I mean, obviously the Lighthouse of Alexandria has a great reputation, but usually what these were were simply fires, either wood fires or coal fires that, you know, were at the top of some sort of elevated platform. So then things changed. And did that come with trade when when ships were going farther afield and they just had to have uh, markers for different things that were dangerous? The change started to pick up in the 18th century. And obviously it's sort of pushed by the fact that you have lots more ships um, making these oceanic voyages. Um, but there's still, in a way, there still was this problem that the, the lights were not necessarily bright enough to make what we think of as modern lighthouse to, to really fully warn ships away from a coastline. So even once you get to the 18th century, you've got a fairly vigorous maritime trade, but lighthouses are still being lit by coal fires or, or candles, and they still almost entirely marked entrances to either harbors or sometimes entrances to where you would turn in to enter a bay. So now this gets into the theme of, of your book, which is the development of this new technology by Fresnel and the birth of the modern lighthouse. And what's fascinating to me, which your book described it so beautifully, is that in 1819, you have this famous painting that those of us who have been to Paris, people love it, the Jericho's The Raft of the Medusa, this horrible shipwreck and all this suffering. I never put it together. There was no good lighthouse, and the shipwreck ran aground because there was none of that safeguard. And in the same year, Fresnel was filling this need by developing this radical new kind of lens that could shine a much stronger beam and be more effective for maritime safety. What is it about this new lens that enabled it to be head and shoulders above the previous technology? Well, it's able to sort of capture all of the light available. I mean, the problem that you had with just having an open fire on a pillar is that most of the light going out of a light source, I mean, the light will sort of radiate in all directions. So only a very small portion of it is actually hitting your eye, which means that most of it is being sort of effectively wasted in terms of its brightness. So what this lens is able to do, it's able to sort of capture all of the light that would have been radiated in the opposite direction or above or below, and it's able to bend it into a single beam, which is much, much brighter than what you would have seen with the naked flame alone. Okay, so when I look at this Fresnel lens, it looks like a picket fence of reflectors. Is it is that <laughs> directing all the different light that it can onto one spot so then it can be pushed out, or, or how does that work in layman's terms? So the idea of a lens is that it's going to bend light. But the problem with the sort of standard lenses of the day. I mean, you can think of, you know, sort of these big convex lenses um, with the sort of bulge out in the middle. If you're going to try to use that to bend the light in a lighthouse, it would have to be simply enormous because you're bending the light through these really sharp distances. So it would have been larger than anything that was physically possible to produce at the time. And also it would have been so thick that a lot of the light would have been lost traversing Mm -hmm. it. So Fresnel's big innovation, his sort of big insight, was um, that you could achieve the same effect of bending all of the light into a single beam by sort of cutting out all of the glass in the middle, essentially, and instead having 
a number of different prisms that are arranged in a precise uh, mathematical way such that they're directing all of the light into this single beam. And so that's what you're seeing when you see a Fresnel lens. It looks like this beehive of, uh, of glass prisms in some way, but they're arranged so that mathematically the light is all being directed into a single beam. And you have different kinds. You have what are called the fixed lenses, which send the light all the way out in a plane that's at eye level, or you have uh, rotating lenses, which will fix it into individual beams. And then as the, the lens rotates, you're going to see a flash of light every 30 seconds or 15 seconds or whatever the designated signature is. Teresa Levitz, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She teaches history at the University of Mississippi, and she's written A Short, Bright Flash to explain the remarkable stories behind the birth of the modern lighthouse. Now, Teresa, I'm going to leave all of that technology and scientific explanation to people who read the book. I mean, you've got a, a fascinating <laughs> chapter even called The Dream of Total Refraction. So there's lots that people can learn about that. But let's get beyond that and just talk about what was the impact of that? Because within 100 years, we've got thousands of these lighthouses now. And if you look at charts, you see every little bluff all along the coast of Europe is dotted with a powerful lighthouse. How did that transform coastlines and, and why did it even matter? In some ways, it made all the difference in the world. It's sort of transforming the very nature of a lighthouse. It's transforming the possibility of what a lighthouse can do. Because you go from having these lights, which are really visible on a good day, a few miles away, you go to having lights which are perfectly visible up until the beam is eclipsed by the curvature of the Earth. Sometimes people have reported up to 40 miles away. And why did that help? Often about 10 miles or so seems to be the, uh, the distance of how far away you want to be able to see a light in order to, to make it really effective. Because a lot of times shoals extend past the light itself. And so sailors were continually complaining before this that these feeble lights that had been placed there in order to warn them of the presence of the shore, um, they didn't dare try to go look for them because by the time they were able to actually see the lights, they had effectively been drawn into the, the shoals themselves. Wow. In fact, the early light that they put in, in in Cape Hatteras, the coast pilot that all of the sailors used when sailing the, the American coast, actually told sailors not to go looking for this light. They would probably just get in trouble doing so. Teresa Levitz explaining how lighthouses lit the way for sailors from Dunkirk to Saigon, thanks to the invention of Augustine Fresnel. Her book's called A Short Bright Flash. Now, if you're thinking about traveling in Europe, are there any particular lighthouses that we should know about in our sightseeing? Are there some that you think are good if you want to sleep in a lighthouse, if you want to tour a lighthouse, if there's a great museum about Fresnel in a lighthouse? What should we know when planning our European adventure, wanting to clue into lighthouses? Well, France actually has done a lot to preserve its lighthouses. It has... (laughs) the most beautiful lighthouse of the, the world, the lighthouse Le Corduan, which is on the Atlantic coast. It's often called the Versailles of the Sea. It was actually first constructed in the 17th century. And the idea was that if the King of France wanted to visit him, it was going to be ready. And it had marble fireplaces, gilt statues. And, and this is open to the public? It is open to the public. It's actually a very popular place for people to get married in France. And what's the name, if you could spell it, and where is it in France? Sure. It's Le, L-E, and then Cordouan. So it's C-O-R-D-O-U-A-N. And so it's on the uh, Gironde estuary, but it's sort of the middle of the Atlantic coast in France. 
if you're going to go visit Bordeaux, it's actually, this is the... Oh, down um, by Bordeaux. Okay. Well, that's yes. good. Now, is that a Fresnel lamp? It is. This was actually the first lighthouse in the world to have a Fresnel lens wow. in it. Um, the lighthouse itself is older than that, but this is where they tested it out, actually. Mm-hmm. It was uh, sort of, they gave Fresnel the opportunity to mount one of these, and then he did, and everyone was impressed enough that after that, France went and they switched over all of their lighthouses to Fresnel lenses and actually built about three times as many as already existed. And if you want to really see a Fresnel uh, lens, where would you go anywhere for a museum to see this? Oh, there are a lot of great ones. Uh, So one of my favorites is Point Reyes in California. It actually has a a first-order lens, which is still Mm -hmm. operating. There are Mm -hmm. are several lighthouses where these are still operating and actually are still being used for the purpose of navigation. So theirs is both still operating, and yet you're able to sort of walk up into the tower and see it. The drawback with some of the operating ones is that you can't see them. You know, when people go and visit lighthouses, I think that, you know, they should also look and see if there's a museum that has the lens next to it. Cape Ann in in Gloucester uh, sort of recently redid an exhibit featuring their the first order lens uh, there in the museum. Mm-hmm. You know that's a good point because all along the western coast of Europe, I've noticed when there's a historic lighthouse, there's very often a just a humble little museum attached to it or nearby where you do have uh, an exhibit about lighthouses along the coast and a chance to look at the uh, technology of the age. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Teresa Levitt, and we've been learning about The Birth of the Modern Lighthouse and her new book, A Short Bright Flash. Teresa, thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. You'll find web links to our guests in each week's show details. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Up next, we take your calls at 877-333-RICK as we hear why the Welsh have plenty of reasons to be proud of who they are. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When your nation's bounded on three sides by the rocky coast of the Irish Sea and on the other side by England, there's probably going to be some bad blood with the English in your history. But I find Wales is a great way to get a taste of Celtic culture in Britain. And it's just a short ride from London. We're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by my favorite guide to Wales. I first met Martin Delandovitz on a tour of the magnificent Carnarvon Castle. He's been guiding visitors there for years. Martin's taught me a lot about what it means to be Welsh. Martin, nice to have you back. Hi, Rick. So, Martin, how is Wales the same, and how is it different from English culture? Well, it's different in many ways. I mean, for a start, it's Celtic, if you like. That's you, pretty fundamental. Yes. Uh, now, where I come from in the North Carnarvon is the, how can you say, you have the greatest proportion of Welsh speakers in Wales. It's, it's over 95% of people use Welsh as their first language where I live. See, now that is really striking to me today. Yes. 95% of the people in your town speak Welsh first. Yes. And they'll speak English to a tourist, but you prefer when you go to the grocery store to speak in Welsh. That's right. Now, the reason for that is that uh, if you go to Gwynedd, I always say of Wales that we started with nothing and we still have most of it. Now, Gwynedd is, um, let's say it's mountainous. That's a state in the north of Wales? Yes, it's a Uh, county. It doesn't doesn't give much, as it were. The the landscape is unforgiving. It's not economically yielding. And so that people that live there, nobody really wanted it. The Romans didn't really want it, and even Edward I didn't really want it. Tell me if I got this right. Very simplistic terms. Mm. Long time before the Angles came over from the Mm. continent, Celtic people lived throughout what is United Kingdom the today. United Kingdom, yes. And then the Angles came, and, and they had they were stronger and had mm. their military, and they pushed the indigenous people to the more meager and hard-to-farm fringes. Yes. And England took the Angles took the best land, which became England, and the Celtic people got what they didn't really want to work, Scotland and Wales and yes. Ireland. 
Cornwall even. And these are the points that the Anglo-Saxons who come over on the, as the, the Roman Empire breaks up, they take what they like. You know, they subsume pre-existing Celtic culture. Deep soil uh, crops will grow. When they come to the mountainous wastes of Wales or of Scotland, they go, oh my gosh, we don't want that. So Angles became Angle land. And w- what's the derivation of the word Wales? Wales is, in fact, uh, an English term. It, it's ultimately a, a proto-Germanic term, you know, Valhaz. It means uh-huh. foreigner. Wales means foreigner. It means foreigner in Anglo-Saxon. You have the same word, Walloons. The, the Walloons are the foreigners the French, of the low countries. Yes, they're, they're, of they're, the French, yeah. The French speaking in Belgium, the non-Germanic. It means foreigner. It's a Germanic word, and it was used for anybody originally who, who lived within the Roman Empire. Okay. And so even the word walnut has that wow element in it. It was a nut that wasn't found in the German-speaking world, and so it's, oh, it's the foreign nut. Well, what was the phrase you said earlier, if you got little and you've kept most of it? Mm, that's right. <laughs> you we started have, out with little and you still got most so of it. We started with nothing and we still have most of it. People tried to take it off us, but we still have it. And you're protecting the language. The, where you In your county, most people speak Welsh. How is the government promoting the preservation of the language? Well, where I live, school is taught in Welsh because it is the first language. And you can go all the way through to doctorate level in Welsh. It has uh, equal status in law. Therefore, all your, your income tax and so on is going to appear in Welsh, as indeed they appear in English. But you have to be clear that the Bible uh, was translated into Welsh about 1600. And when it was translated, people looked at the Welsh language and oh, this is vulgar. And so they invented, as it were, a whole new version of Welsh, which was more Latinized, posher, if you oh, like. Oh, is that right? That's right. So nobody in the street, apart from ministers of religion, ministers of state, and university teachers, actually uses the written form of Welsh when talking. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're, we're talking with Martin Delandovitz, and we're talking about the foundations of Welsh culture. When you think of the foundations of Welsh culture, Martin, cities really are not a Welsh thing. Cities were established by the English that came in to subdue the insurgents, the Welsh people in the countryside. Is that right? Yeah, well, if you read, there's a, there's a guy who travels around Wales in, at the end of the 1100s, Gerald de Wales, Geraldus Cambrensis, and he says in his itinerary of Wales, Wales has no cities. It has no use of cities. And quite simply, it's a, the city exists, if you think about it, as a place where people go shopping. But, uh-huh. but what if the surrounding land is so poor, so ill-provided that they, anything to shop. Exactly, they fend for themselves? And therefore, even if you look at the population of Wales in 1801, it was only half a million people. So would you say most of the cities would have started as garrison towns uh, to support castles by the in, English uh, overlords? In North Wales, yes. But, you know, cities, there were small settlements, very small settlements. It's a remarkable country for that. But, of course, the urbanization of Wales as we know it today uh, came with the, in the 19th century. In the north, slate was produced and it roofed the houses of towns. So what we think of as Wales today is industrial age, exactly. heritage, the, the mining industry, yeah. the slate. Exactly. And that gave us towns. Now, also that gave us choirs, a very important part of Welsh culture in that when people came together in the workplace or indeed in the many and varied what were known as non-conformist chapels, they didn't conform to the established Church of England, ah. and grew hugely, particularly in the 18th century. They started in the 19th century, but of course the great Methodist arrival of 1904, and these many and varied chapels were built, singing started, and of course in the workplace, once people start to come together to work in the factory, the coal mine, the slate mine or quarry, then they will start singing, and they will be male choirs. 
They, they will not be mixed. So if you wanted a job in the 1800s, you had to work in the company mine, or the, the mm. town was a company town, yes. and you'd had to work in the mine, and you'd get one day off a week, and you'd gather mm. together, and you would you would sing. Yes, and pe- people would actually sing during their work time. Today, as travelers, we can enjoy that? You can, male voice choirs. Male voice choirs are, how can one say, it's an aging thing. Young people tend not to join choirs in the same numbers that they used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, can you still find it today? In oh, yes, indeed, towns? you can. All over Wales, there are choirs. And a good thing to do is why not go to their practice? Is a traveler right. welcome to go to a practice? Very welcome. You'll be made very welcome. You said that maybe you'd like to make a small contribution. Hmm. But their practice nights are good. Now, of course, they travel the world to give their concerts. Mm-hmm. But they always practice at home. So when you go to your bed and breakfast in some small town in Wales, ask, can ask. I hear the, the local choir? There is a website you can go on if you look up Welsh choirs. It has a map showing where each of them is and will give you a phone number and when their practice nights are. That sounds like a perfect way to connect with Welsh culture alive today. Martin Delandovitz is our guide to the foundations of Welsh culture right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And if you can't remember that, next time you're in Carnarvon, just ask locally for Mr. Castle. We're at 877-333-7425, and Chris is calling us from Valencia in California with a question for Martin that's been on her mind after visiting Wales. Hi, Chris. Hello, Martin. Bori da. And Bori da, she, yeah. Uh, yes, I, I spent a lovely week uh, a couple of years ago in North Wales and really enjoyed visiting the slate mines, the gardens, the countryside, and, of course, the castles. Mm. And the question I had was, um, it seems sort of a happy irony to me but do the Welsh feel a certain satisfaction in seeing their proud flag flying over the once formidable iron ring of castles, English castles that were built to sort of keep them down? A couple of things to say. You know, the castles were built, in fact, the, the ones in North Wales to hold down uh, the people of Gwynedd. They were much more of a statement uh, than anything else. I mean, the, the cost of them is huge. The size of them, you've seen this, haven't you? They're vast. But, you know, that's 700 years ago, and there, Wales has greater problems, let's say, or more interesting things to worry about than things that happened 700 years ago. Yes, it's nice that the Welsh dragon flies over those castles today, but, you know, purely as buildings, they are marvels of architecture built all those years ago. They're, they're wonderful. But quite honestly, anybody who grinds an axe of 700 years old is, well, they've got to, they've got to get up to date. They've got to get up to date. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, which castles did you enjoy visiting? Carnarvon, Conway, and went over to Harlech Castle and... Bomaris as well with the most. Yeah, beautiful. those are the those are four of the best, aren't they? They are very, and each one is so very different. Which town did you stay in, Chris, while you were up there? I spent a week there, and because I was sort of on my own uh, during the public transit, the uh, buses and trains and such, I stayed uh, a few days in Carnarvon because the buses sort of go out of there, and so it was easier mm-hmm. to visit some of the places. Visit uh, Beskellert and the the slate mines there, and then I spent a few days in Conway so that I could visit Bodnick Garden. It was easier to get to. And also over at Sindidno. You know, I really like Carnarvon and Conway. Which one did you prefer if somebody was choosing one or the other as a home base in the north of Wales? I think for, as far as if you're riding the buses, there's a great place if you're staying inside the walls of Carnarvon, the town. So it's easier to get to the main link where the buses are, yeah. for me. But I think if you had a car, you could probably stay in either. Yeah. But can I chip in here, Chris? And you've done something that I think was a very good thing to do. You use the buses, the public transportation there. And would you agree that provided you had a timetable and, and a watch on your wrist, it was an easy thing to do? It was very easy. And I went to the TI that's there in Carnarvon, and they had the updated timetable for me. And, 
and it was very easy. And the buses were on time, and a lot of people are riding them. And it's a great place to meet some people when you're. They hear that you're American. They want to know where you're from and mm. where you've been, and they suggesting places to visit while I was there. And that's why I actually ended up in San Didno for an afternoon and evening because so many people had said, many Welsh had said, you must go. Clan Dudlow, that starts with a double L, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yes. Clen, it's the uh, resort, elegant old 19th century resort town a few miles uh, north of Conway. It is a great place, and a lot of Americans uh, don't even know about it. I, I just discovered it a couple years ago. Chris, good advice, and uh, thanks for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Corinne's on the phone from Dartmouth in Nova Scotia. Corinne, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I just wanted to share, I guess, my experience, too. I've been to um, Carnarvon. First visit was about six years ago. And um, I went there because I knew that my ancestors originated from that part of Wales. And on my first visit, I went to the, um, the town office, and they were very helpful and let me go through some of their records. And I found the handwritten entry of the baptism of my great-great-great-grandfather. Wow. Oh. Um, I was very excited. I mean, they let me touch the books and everything. And uh, so before I went again, I, I did some more digging, and I actually located a cousin I never knew I had who lives in Carnarvon today. And Gosh. as you mentioned, she speaks Welsh. It's her first language. Her daughter actually teaches it in one of the local schools. And she took me around to visit places that she's also into looking at our ancestry, and she, she knew where they had lived. My uh, great-great-grandfather moved the family to Canada just before World War I because they had, a, I guess they would have had a pretty tough existence there. Looking at my family, the lucky ones got jobs in the slate quarry, hmm. and yeah. uh, others would have had jobs as servants or... So I think they moved to Canada for better opportunity. But the experience that I had there was, it was incredible. We had spent some time in, in Ireland just before going back there. But I felt that as a traveler, I got to experience the Celtic culture as it is without the crush of tourists while we were visiting. And the people there were just incredibly kind and as the previous caller said they love to talk to you and find out where you're from and why are you here and how did you get here. And and we, too, used the public transportation system there and found it to be quite easy. You know, that's a very good point, Corinne, is just when you go to Wales, regardless of how important the castle or the museum you're looking at is, just being in Wales, going from town to town, sitting on a public bus, talking to people, staying in a bed and breakfast, going to a pub for dinner, sharing a beer with somebody... You'll meet people, and that's the probably the most charming aspect of going to Wales is just connecting with the culture, and it's so easy to do, and it's actually easier to do if you go away from where the tourist crowds might be. I found the same thing, and um, we stayed in an inn inside the castle walls in Carnarvon, and according to my cousin, it's also sort of the local favorite for dinner, but it also had two pubs, and we couldn't be sat down more than five minutes, and we weren't engaged in a conversation with whoever was sitting next to us. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was my favorite part of the visit. I love that. When I'm working on my guidebook, sometimes I just need to leave the B&B and go to the pub for dinner. And I sort of say, okay, you're just going to eat and you're going to go back to work. And the local people don't let me. They make me talk. (laughs) They buy me a beer. They make me have a good time. And I just love that that passion for enjoying the moment and, and getting to know people that you and, and the experience when you go to a pub, especially in Wales. 
and this pub that I, is just my favorite place in the world. Like I tell people, of all the pubs I've ever been to, there's this little pub in Carnarvon at the Black Boy Inn. Yeah, the Black Boy. Yeah. At, at, on a good day, they might be able to squeeze uh, 25 people in there, but it's my <laughs> favorite pub in the world. <laughs> oh no, you, you want to go there on a Friday night? We squeeze a lot more than 25 in there. I can tell you. <laughs> Martin knows oh. it well. I right. can see the big <laughs> Martin. You you grew up in in Carnarvon. Talk about the the what is the Black Boy Pub. Uh, the Black Boy is, uh, well, it claims to be the oldest pub in Carnarvon. It's it's run by John. And John, if you're listening, John, is one of the, really, he can run a business. It's a great business to stay, to eat, to drink. It's a great business. Anything he touches, he does well. And the Black Boy is expanding and expanding, buying property, more and more rooms mm. uh, for people to stay at. I, I, I would recommend it. But do you know, there are many places you can stay within the walls of Carnarvon. Uh, mm-hmm. Black Boy, famous pub within the town. And a lot of very affordable B&Bs that are very friendly right in town. Right in town. Corinne, thanks for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Delandovitz about traveling in Wales. Martin, I want to just a quick review. We're talking about the the foundations of Welsh culture. Mm -hmm. And so much of our sightseeing relates to the industrial base. Can you just quickly review some things to look for when we're in Wales that, that would be tourist attractions that relate to the industrial heritage? Well, as you know, we slate in the north, coal, iron, and steel in the south. Now, coal, iron, and steel, how can one say they're not as uh, active as they used to be? In fact, they're pretty inactive. But the and slate mines are great. The do. slate mines are still working, but there, there are, how can you say, good interpretive sites run by National Museum of Wales, for example, in the north, the Slate Museum of the north, and you can do the same thing in South Wales. Now, of course, we have lots of mountains. Uh, we have very poor soil, and so we have lots of sheep. Uh-huh. And so uh, we have uh, woolen mills, and you can visit woolen mills. You can buy woolens. And, of course, all those uh, coal, iron, and steel uh, needed transportation, so we had trains. And a lot of those trains today are run, let's say, as visitor attractions. You can, you can travel on those railways. Cute little miniature gauge steam yes, trains, yes. but they were for real in the oh, day. Oh, for real. And we had some of the first railways in the, in the world, simply because oh, Richard Trevithics, you know, the Penadaran Works, first working uh, steam locomotive in the world. And uh, you could, you, George and Robert Stevenson were building railways into the slate mines, into the coal mines, and so a lot of those are, are good to ride on. Martin, very quickly, I just love the goofy little jabs that the Welsh and the Scots and the Irish and the English have at each other. Can you just give me your most feisty little take on the on the uni- United Kingdom as a Welshman? Uh, it's like a family. Uh, the family argues, it it bickers tremendously, each with the other. And, you know, you have to say that there's this element of resentment. England's always had the deepest soil and the greatest wealth. And so, let's say Scotland in Britain and Wales in Britain, there's always a little bit of envy, you know. We're, we're very well-balanced people in Wales. We have a chip on both shoulders, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, you know, England has always uh, historically leaned on Scotland. It's always historically leaned on Wales. But, you know, that's in the past, and we can't, we can't forever be jealous. We can't. It's a poor person who identifies himself by the fact that he is not English. That's, right. that's a negative, isn't it? It is. And it's going to produce a pretty rotten positive from, from that negative, isn't it? Be proud to be Welsh. Be proud to be Scottish. Don't, don't say, I'm not this. Just, just be good I at what you are. I am this. Yes, I am this. And be proud of it. Well, well, Martin, you certainly are Welsh. And it's great to be talking to you and, and feel your pride in your culture. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick.
People flock there to admire the tallest fountain in England when the 18th century water garden at Stanway House is opened for the public to view. Among her duties, Lorraine Denin gets to flip the switch that shoots a jet of water 300 feet into the air. She shares what it's like to guide visitors around one of England's most eccentric historical estates, where the 13th Earl of Weems makes his home. Hear what it's like to be working for the Earl. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm told that being a nobleman from a wealthy family with a long history in England can be a mixed blessing. While it might require a crew the size of the staff at Downton Abbey to keep the place together, having the finances to operate a centuries-old family estate is a challenge for owners whom you might classify as Europe's impoverished nobility. As a result, many of them open their homes and gardens to the public to earn a little extra income. Lorraine Deneen shows visitors through Stanway House when it's open, twice a week in the summertime. I filmed a visit there with my TV crew recently, and it's great to have Lorraine join us in our studio right now to fill us in on what it's like to show people around the Jacobean Manor home of Lord Needpath. Lorraine, welcome. Nice to be here, Rick. So, Lorraine, you work in a Jacobean Manor house. What's a manor house, and, and what is Jacobean? Jacobean is a period of architecture that stretches from the end of the 16th century through to the early 17th century. And Stanway House is a local manor house. It's not huge, but it's big by our standards. And it was built in about 1590. Hmm. And that would be the Jacobean period. Is that named after King King James? James. King James, yeah. all right. The house is owned by a family, I suppose, for many generations. And the current landlord is a man called the Earl of Weems? Yes, the Earl of Weems's family have owned it since it was built in 1590. Prior to that, it was owned by the monks, the abbots of Tewkesbury, and they lost the house at the time of the Reformation. When Henry VIII uh, dissolved the monasteries? And, uh, Absolutely, yes. So this is interesting. All over Europe during that period, kings, feeling their oats, decided that the, the church owned too much land and had too much power, and they just uh, overnight dissolved the monasteries. And what they did was uh, pretty much run the abbots out of town and uh, inherit all that land. So that went from being an abbey to being a manor house. In fact, Downton Abbey, would that have been an abbey before it was owned by the the famous family there? One would imagine so, yes. Okay. Now, describe your work in, in a place like uh, Stanway House. Well, I'm responsible for getting visitors into the house on a fairly regular basis, although the family don't want too many visitors there because obviously they live in the house. So they don't want to have to put up with visitors tromping through all the time. So I'm restricted to the amount of time I can give to visitors. And currently, the Earl opens it up to the public twice a week, only three months of the year. Now, this is the Great Hall. Oh, yeah. Uh, biggest room in the house. You still have uh, gatherings in this room? We have quite a lot, yes. Um, now, how old is this house? This house is probably about 1590. But it, there's been something here since... Yeah. And I happened to have been there just a couple months ago, and I got to tromp around through the house, and it really is an intimate look at the life of the uh, Earl of Weems. I mean, he was working with his secretary, and we could peek in at his office, and we can go into his bedroom. I can see what books are on the little table next to his toilet. Uh, you can see the, the family uh, 
portraits on the on the walls, and there are people stationed in each room to answer questions, and there's actually an audio tour that lets you understand what you're looking at. Does he actually need the money? Is this why he's doing this? He does need the money, although the money is not that important to him. He's told he needs the money. His managers tell him he needs the money, but it's something that is not a priority for him. So it's left to mm. us to try and get some income from but visitors. His, his family has owned that place for 500 years. They have indeed, yes. And he's the Earl of Weems. They have a huge estate in Scotland, which is their traditional family seat. Okay. He's the first Earl of Weems to actually live at Stanway. There's a rather beautiful bit of furniture called a William and Mary. So I've had him take me on little tours of different rooms and open up drawers and pull out a a lock of hair by great-great-great-grandmama. And it's clipped to a piece of paper, and on there is scrawled the woman's name and when she lived. Mm -hmm. Oh, Papa's hair. And he can show me these, you know, kind of funky paintings that have hung on the wall for 300 years. There's a man in that painting around there. And he talks about these people like he knows them. That's his hair, I mean. Wow. It says here. Papa's hair cut June the 5th, Thursday, 1755. And you see that's as fresh as if it was cut yesterday. This is a different mindset, isn't it? The the nobility, the, the blue bloods of England. It is a different mindset. He himself is an historian and he keeps a massive archive at Stanway House so that when I get a bit of free time, I can creep into the archive, which is a temperature-controlled room, and I can look at stuff that was written 300 years ago I can look at photos from before the First World War and you can really get a feel for what it must have been like in Downton Abbey Mm -hmm. at that time. Well, you go ahead 100 years and here we have the great-great-grandchildren of the folks we know in Downton Abbey still running their manor houses but opening it up twice a week, three months a year so tourists can tromp through. Tour guide Lorraine Deneen is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's been guiding visitors around stately Stanway House in the countryside of England for more than five years. It's a privately owned estate. It's the home of James Donald Charteris, the 13th Earl of Weems. I've been visiting Stanway House, where the Earl of Weems lives, for a long time, actually. And uh, he used to be called Lord Needpath, and now he's the Earl of Weems. He's still Lord Needpath in my mind. How does this happen where a man's name changes midlife? It is a bit complicated. Would it help if I described the whole hierarchy of the aristocracy so that, that we, could, we could get a... Yeah. Well, right at the top of the pile, you've got royal dukes. Dukes. Who are normally the sons or grandsons of the monarchy. Okay. And they take precedence over everybody. Okay. Next in line, you've got dukes. So at Blenheim, for example, you've got the Duke of Marlborough. And there's been like 13 of them or something. Yep. Yep. Next down are marquises. Mm who take precedence over the next down, who are earls. And we're talking about the Earl of Weems at Stanway Uh House. And below him, you have barons and viscounts and baronets, and it all gets terribly complex. And those are the titles we hear in Downton Abbey. Yes. And then Lord, Lord Needpath, is that below Earl? Lords, they are all called lords. So even though he's the Earl of Weems... He's called Lord Weems in certain circles. Ah, so before he just went by Lord Needpath, something must have happened where he got this promotion. Well, his dad died, basically. Okay, so then he moves up the ladder. So he moves up the ladder, yes. All right. Earlier I talked about how there is this impoverished nobility 
Do you find that that's the case, is that these people still, they own their land, but they haven't abolished the landed nobility, but it's just more heavily taxed where they can't be quite the economic powers they used to be? They are more heavily taxed, yes. And revenues from land are not as huge as they were. The land is not producing the amount of money it used to. If you think about sheep, for example, mm-hmm. sheep used to produce a lot of money, but they don't anymore. They're not even worth sharing anymore. No, they're not. Wow. Now, Lord Needpath, or the Earl of Weems, depending on which decade you're talking to him, he has uh, an interesting social world because he would still be connected with other uh, blue bloods. Talk about how that parallel society exists in England today. It's very much part of ordinary society today. So certain earls, certain lords, will just mix with ordinary people, Okay, and which is what the Earl of Weems does. But occasionally... Just occasionally you get that little indication that they are just slightly different to the rest of us. And it could be anything from him dropping out a story that he's been to a party at Windsor Castle, or it could be him expecting his staff just to run around and tidy up after him. So he's got that entitlement, and he does get invited to the fancy royal parties a little more. Would he have closer associates in the the House of Lords? He would do, yes, although... He doesn't actually sit in the House of Lords anymore. Oh, he did at one time? He did at one time, yes. Okay, now that would be England has the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Yes. Kind of democracy, but uh, making a big concession for rich elites. Yes, yeah, that's right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lorraine Deneen about life in a stately manor house, uh, specifically Stanway House in the Cotswold Villages. And if you go to a little town called Stanway, it's near Stone-the-Wold, a few minutes' drive from... uh, Broadway is nearby. It is. And uh, it's just a delightful area. You come to a manor house and uh, 10 or 12 times a year it's open to the public. And the first place you go to buy your ticket is the tithing barn. And uh, the tithing barn is fascinating to me because it reminds me that there was a time when everybody who uh, got to live on the manor, everybody who got to live in any of the land holdings would give a cut of their produce to the Lord and they would bring it to the barn because they didn't have cash. They would just bring produce. Is, Is that how the tithing barn worked? That's right. We call it the Tithe Barn, and it was owned by the abbots of Tewkesbury. They actually built that barn in 1370. They owned the place before the Earls of Weems took it on. Okay. So it was the abbots, the monks, that demanded taxes in the form of tithes. And in that particular barn, it would have been grain that they kept. So they would pay their rent the equivalent of rent in in grain. Absolutely. And then the Lord would have the wherewithal to turn that into hard cash. Lorraine, you're a tour guide at the Earl of Weems' house. Ten times a year, you open it up, and people come in, and and you show them around. Uh, Let's just finish our discussion with three or four interesting little details about his life that you could actually see if I walked with you through the Earl of Weems' stately manor house. You can see all the books he's reading at the moment as you walk through, because he leaves everything lying around, which can be a bit of a nightmare for us. You can see his kitchen, where he eats his breakfast and bakes his own bread. He bakes his own bread. Um, And and he brews some kind of juice or wine or something. He's poured out of a very dirty little jar for me, and I thought, oh, this is really intimate. No. He makes his own elderflower wine and that sort of thing. He goes out into the fields and the garden, and he gathers berries and makes his own wine. He's also got a brewery there at Stanway. A couple more things we might see in his house. This is a very traditional English game called... Shuffleboard. 
or shovelboard. Can we try a couple of these? Because this is a huge table. It's like three times as long as a ping pong table. It is, yes. You have to shove counters the length of the table. If they cross the line at the end, they score one point. This is like a hockey puck on a polished piece yeah. of wood that's two or three times as long as a ping pong table, so you shuffleboard it. It's 22 feet long, this uh-huh. table. It's a single piece of oak, and it was made in 1620. Oh. Holy cow. It's been there ever since it was built, basically. Ah, bit short. What else might you find? Well, they've got an exercise chair, which um, sounds bizarre. The one they've got is actually by Chippendale. And in those days, in the 18th century, they believed that if it was too wet to go out riding, you still needed to get your exercise. So you'd sit on this chair, which has got springs in it, and bounce up and down. And the theory is you sit on it like that. And then you put your arms up on these rails here. And then you sort of got armrests and a big spring, and, and you, you've got your, the Lord jumping up and down on this giant spring. For about half an hour every morning. Simulates riding. In actual Like fact, a human jack in the box. <laughs> yes, a bit like that. Just to jiggle up his innards, is that what it was? Yeah. Or to, to tone his muscles? No, no, to jiggle your liver about. So if you didn't get a chance to ride a horse to jiggle your liver, yeah. stay home, don't even go out in the weather, and uh, jiggle on your on your big spring. And it's the uh, 18th century equivalent of jogging. It sort of shakes up your liver. The interesting thing about those chairs is they were the first items of furniture to actually have springs in them. So it's thanks to them that we developed comfortable beds and sofas and things. And not-so-healthy livers, the way we have today. <laughs> it's more for couch potatoes than yes. for people with jiggled innards. Yes. And then, uh, oh, the Lord, is uh, he, he really enjoys his, his dog, it seems like. Oh, uh, well, yes. Visitors who wander through the house will see a massive family tree of his own family, but right next to it, there's a little dog family tree. A lot of the dogs in the family have been called smelly, and there's a bit of a smelly dog family tree there. Uh, He made some comment to me that his current dog was uh, something like all something but no breeding. It didn't quite have the uh, distinguished lineage that his previous dog had. No, it's a bit of a mongrel, the latest dog, but it loves the visitors. And whenever visitors are in the house, he lets the dog out. And, of course, everybody loves a dog, don't they? Lorraine Deneen, thank you so much for giving us a little glimpse at a, a different world, taking us inside of Stanway House in the most beautiful corner in England, as far as I'm concerned, the Cotswold Villages. And when you go back home and when you go back to work, please tell the Earl of Weems at Stanway House, hello from Rick Steves. He's just a beautiful man, and I'm so thankful that he opens his house up to the public and all of us commoners to get a little glimpse at his world. Thank you, Rick. I will tell him that. What is a lord? What is a lord? It's a, a peer. Um, I have to say, somebody who's entitled to sit in Parliament. Are you a lord? Um, Well, I'm not actually a peer, but I'm son of a peer. Son of a peer, (laughs) okay. We have links to the Stanway House website with this week's program notes. As always, you find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. How do you cope with the jet lag you're likely to feel when you finally reach your destination after a long transcontinental flight through many time zones? Cameron Hewitt's a senior editor and researcher at Rick Steves Europe, and he's a guest with us on Travel with Rick Steves from time to time. He files this report for us as he shakes off the desire to take a nap when he landed in Rome after a long flight from Seattle. I just landed in Rome after a 15-hour flight from Seattle. I've been awake for about 30 hours, and right now, I'm just trying to stay awake. Hi, I'm Cameron Hewitt. Being in Europe is a blast. 
But flying to Europe can be miserable, especially that first afternoon, culture-shocked and deliriously sleep-deprived. At times like these, travel is mind-bending and tedious. My one strict jet lag rule, never let yourself sleep a wink before a reasonable local bedtime. But this afternoon in Rome, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Okay, here's the plan. I'll go on a sort of a zombie tour of Rome's famous landmarks. That'll keep me moving and might just remind me why I'm enduring this self-imposed torture to begin with. I stumble across town to the Trevi Fountain. It's helping. The humid air, the tourists tossing their coins, the mesmerizing sound of flowing water. Okay, I better keep moving. So I follow the promenading tourists to the Spanish Steps, another mob scene. A cascade of loitering humanity flows down that famous staircase. It's a United Nations of tourists jabbering at each other as they snap their selfies. But soon, those sounds also fade into a lullaby. All right, move along. Next up is my favorite spot in Rome, the Pantheon. This ancient temple, 1900 years old, still has a perfectly intact dome. And the piazza out front is fun and lively. Kids are playing in fountains, while their parents are paying way too much for a cocktail at a rickety table. The photos I take come with rainbow streaks from those neon-lit whirligigs that street vendors are shooting up into the air. But suddenly, those rainbows are replaced with miniature freckles on my lens. It's drizzling. Great. When you're jet-lagged, bad weather is your worst enemy. At this point, caffeine is my only hope. I scurry a couple of blocks away, dodging umbrellas that pop open all around me, to the Café Sant'Eustachio. My guidebook says that it's one of Rome's most venerable coffee houses, but I don't care about that. Right now, I just need to caffeinate. This was a good choice. The old-school coffee house has a long counter, rich wood decor, and an old-fashioned espresso machine. I join the other refugees from the rain at the busy bar. Baristas hustle to fill orders. Tiny spoons clink against the rims of antique little cups, like pinpricks to my drooping brain. The espresso arrives. I take a sip, and then it happens. I look up from the cup of coffee at the classic convivial hubbub all around me, and I realize, hey, I'm in Europe. Over the years, I've come to collect and savor these first night, hey, I'm in Europe, epiphanies. It's the one thing that makes jet lag worthwhile. I leave the cafe with a caffeine-fueled spring in my step. A street violinist serenades me, filling me with confidence that after a good night's sleep, tomorrow will bring a vivid new world of sunshine, sights, sounds, and unforgettable experiences. And that coffee wasn't bad either. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Kazmura Hall. We get website support from Amara Kipnikone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at WKNO Memphis for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests and the details for each week's show. You'll find it all in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. 
At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.